let's turn together to 1 John chapter 3. And as we continue, we're going to read from verse 4 to verse 9. 1 John 3, verse 4 to 9. Whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abides in him sins not. Whosoever sins has not seen him, neither knows him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that does righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that commits sin is of the devil, for the devil sins from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Let's pray one more time. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for what it means. And we look to you this morning to fill us with your Holy Spirit. And as has been prayed, God, to give us a vision and open our understanding to your truth and to what your gospel says. And we want to see more and more clearly your great love for us and what you've done for us. And I pray that we would see that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. First John. Do you remember what this series we've called it? The Letter of Joyful Assurance. So let this register in your mind. First John is, in the New Testament, the Letter of Joyful Assurance. John writes to the Christians. It's probably a a letter that was not for one church only, but for a multitude of churches, and it would be read, and it would be passed around and read and reread. And the purpose for John writing 1 John was to talk about assurance and to not only talk about assurance, how a person may be assured, and I think a lot of Christian commentators, they see that and they stop there. They say, yeah, John's writing about assurance. But it's more than that. John isn't just writing about assurance. John's writing because he wants the believers to have assurance. He wants them to have fullness of joy when they think about the gospel. And so he says in chapter 1, verse 4, These things write we unto you that your joy may be full. There's no sense in First John that John is doubtful of the believers. That John is saying, you know what, I know there's a lot of phony Christians out there, and I'm going to write a letter, and we're going to root them out with this letter. That's not his intent. If you remember, we talked about in the past how there's ten explicit places in 1 John where he tells us why he is writing the letter, or why he's not writing the letter. And all of them have to do with joyful assurance. None of them have to do with the fact that he's worried about the Christians in any way. So John's writing to us, as believers, and he's saying, I'm writing these things, all of these things, because I want you to have assurance of your salvation, assurance of God's love, so your joy can be full. How many of you know that your joy is full when you are assured of the love of God and the salvation that you have through him? 
Now, how many of you, when you're not assured of that, have much joy? <laughs> how can you? How can you? Joy comes from knowing that you've been saved and that God loves you. That's when joy comes. As Christians, when we remember that, then we have joy. When we forget that, then we don't. It's really that simple. And John writes to help us remember and to help us think about the gospel, to help us consider the gospel from different angles. Most commentators have recognized that John, he writes in a peculiar way. He talks about the same thing again and again, but he looks at it from different angles. And we can get uh, tricked sometimes by reading 1 John because we think that he's all over the map. He's talking about different topics, walking in the light, keeping the commandments, doing righteousness, abiding, overcoming. And we think, oh, these are all separate things. He's telling us to do separate things. When really, he's telling us the same thing from different angles, from different perspectives. To believe the apostolic message of the gospel, to believe what the apostles are telling us about Jesus is to walk in the light. To believe the apostolic message about Jesus is to keep the commandments of God. To believe the apostolic message of Jesus is to overcome the world. It's to abide in the Son and so abide in the Father, and it's to do righteousness. This is John's point, and he wants us to have assurance. He's saying, look, believers, if you believe in the Son, if you believe that he died for you and he rose from the dead and that you're justified through faith, then you have assurance. You've done all these things. Rejoice. Have joy. And don't be deceived by those who are coming to you and saying, there's more to the story. There's more to it. You have to do more than just believe. This is what the message of 1 John is all about. To have assurance isn't more than that. To have assurance isn't more than believing in Christ. Do you believe that? Or do you believe you have to say, well, it's all well and good that you believe in Jesus, but you can't be assured of your salvation until you Prove your stuff by keeping God's commandments and being a good boy and being a good girl. Well, you're never going to have assurance, ever. If you base your assurance of your salvation upon your performance, you will always not have joy because your performance always will fall short. You see, and as I've said many times, I'll say it again, that our works do not bring us assurance but our assurance is what brings us our works, right? We don't do works to get assurance, but we do works because we are assured. And from that source comes our service to God and our love for God. Why else would you love and serve God? But because he first loved you and served you. You see, we've talked about that before. Now in our passage this morning, 1 John chapter 3, 4 to 9, John wants to show us something absolutely amazing. And I'm going to ask you to put your thinking caps on this morning. You're going to need to put them on again. <laughs> Thank you. Because John wants to show us something that's so amazing that nothing, like we sang in that song, like nothing ever seen or heard, okay? Do you believe that the gospel is so amazing and so unique, it's like nothing ever seen or heard? So that when you hear the gospel, when you hear the implications of the gospel, it should make you kind of step back for a minute and go, what, really? The gospel should have an element of surprise in it, don't you think? Or should it just be like, oh yeah, that's regular and common. Oh yeah, that's just like everything else in life. 
yeah, it makes sense. It just fits in. It just goes along with the flow of life. Is that the gospel? Or should the gospel have an element in it where when you hear it, you go, really? Is that what it says? That's amazing. And this is amazing this morning. So be prepared to be amazed by what John says this morning. John begins this next section by defining sin. He defines sin. Now, most errors come from lack of defining our words, right? Let me just give this encouragement and challenge to us this morning that we ought to define our words. We ought to explain to ourselves and to others exactly what we mean when we say things. Because I think there's a temptation to be vague and ambiguous. And when we talk in vague and ambiguous terms, then error gets in. People can come and say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian, I believe in grace, I believe he died on the cross for me. I believe. And they, they're not explaining what they mean by that. And as a matter of fact, they believe something totally different than what you mean. And you can sit down and have an hour-long conversation with a person. And if an onlooker was looking, they'd think you agreed when you don't. Because terms aren't being defined. And brothers and sisters, we need to learn to be clear. We need to learn to explain what we believe. When I say I'm saved by grace, this is what I mean. When I say Jesus is my Savior, this is what I mean. And I, and I explain it. John now ex defines sin. Because sin is one of those words that needs to be defined because people have all sorts of odd definitions of sin. How many of you know that sin isn't a mistake? Sin isn't a mistake, okay? However, the way a lot of people talk about sin, you'd think it was just a mistake. It's almost like they use the mistake and sin as synonyms. But it's not a mistake. Sin is far graver than that. Now, what does John say that sin is? He says, whoever, in verse 4, whoever commits sin, now in the King James he says, he transgresses also the law. He transgresses the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. Now, your translation may be a little different. Some translations may say, sin is lawlessness. Does your translation say that? Sin is lawlessness. And that's a fine translation because that communicates the Greek. Sin is lawlessness. Now, what is lawlessness? What do you think of when you think of lawlessness? Someone not obeying the law. You break it of your own will? Yeah. yeah. An outlaw. There's another important word, right? An outlaw. Well, the word lawless, it sounds like there's no law, right? Lawless. There's no law. And so we could be tempted to think that the word lawless means you're just, there is no such thing as law in that person's life. And in a sense, that's true, but in a sense, it's not true. A lawless person, like when we talk about an outlaw, we say, that lawless bunch of cowboys over there, you know? When we talk about that, we don't mean that they're not under any law. What we mean is they are under law, but they're not living according to that law. Isn't that what we mean? That's why they're bad guys. Because they should be obeying, and they're not obeying. They are not lawless in the sense of being having no law, not without law, but they're not submissive to the law. 
and that makes them lawless. Their lives are lawless. They're not governed by the law that they should be and that they're under. But they're not void of law because if the law catches them, they go to jail. They're still under that system of the law. They're just not abiding by it. Do you catch what I'm saying? And this is why the word lawless, even though that does communicate correctly the Greek word, is translated in the King James or the NIV or the NLT, the New Living Translation, which are paraphrases, as breaking the law. If you have an NIV, I think it says sin is breaking the law, or an NLT. What does NLT say, Matt, in verse 4? Right. And so the King James, whoever sins transgresses law. And that's the sense. Sin is breaking God's commands and God's law. It's not living according and having your life governed by the law of God. Breaking that. And brothers and sisters, just like those outlaws, if you choose, if a person chooses to sin and be lawless, that doesn't mean you've escaped the system of law, does it? Because God, when he finds you, you go to jail, right? And you go to jail because a person who sins is still under the law. They're just not living by it. And so the consequence of sin is death, condemnation, jail, or in the biblical sense, hell. How many of you want to go to hell for your sins? Someone might say, okay, I don't want to obey God anymore. I don't want to obey his law. I'm just going to do my own thing. You can't escape God's law. And by the way, you can't escape God either. He's the enforcer of the law. You're not going to, they're not going to send a posse out for you. God doesn't need a posse to find you. You know that God has found you already? If you're a sinner who is under God's law and has broken God's law, God's already found you. And he could send you to hell whenever he wants. The only reason a sinner isn't in hell is because God has chosen not to send them there. That's the only reason. But he's found you. Don't think that you're on the run. Don't have any fanciful ideas that you can outsmart God and you can hide under a rock. He knows exactly where you are. He could send you to hell at any time. He doesn't because he's being patient with you. It's the only reason. Because he wants you to be saved. That's it. Now, how are we going to be saved if we're lawbreakers? Now, how many of you have sinned? Doesn't the Bible say all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? All of us have sinned. All of us. Now, by the way, there can be some false comfort in that thought, right? We might think, you know, you were making me a little uncomfortable a minute ago, Eli, but now that I know that everybody sins, I think God will probably go easy on us, you know? I'm just like everybody. Come on, everyone's doing it. You can take false comfort in the fact that you're just like everybody else. But brothers and sisters, God is a judge who will judge, and if need be, everybody. Remember when God flooded the earth? Only eight people made it through. Only eight. And the only reason they made it through, and mark this, is because they got on the ark. But if Noah hadn't have got on the ark, Noah would have died in the flood. You realize that? Like the flood was coming for Noah. 
The only reason he didn't get killed is because he got on the ark. He was coming for all flesh. So don't, don't fool yourself. God's not his bark. He's not got a bark that's not as bad as his bite. God is a just judge. How are we going to be saved from our sins then if we've all sinned and we can't hide from God? And verse 5 tells us this good news. Do you know this? Christians know this. He's talking to Christians. If you don't know this, let me invite you this morning to know this. And you know that he, Jesus Christ, was manifested to take away our sins. Let that sink in for a moment. He was manifested. That is referring to when he came, when he incarnated, when Jesus was born. Because he exists before that, but he was manifested to us 2,000 years ago to take away our sins. This was the reason Jesus was born. This was the reason Jesus was manifested. He came to take away your sin. That's why he came. If you had no sin, Jesus wouldn't have come. But because you are a sinner, and I'm a sinner, he came. And for that reason, to take away our sins. He didn't come to be our example. He didn't come just to see what it was like being a human being. He already knew. He's omniscient. But he came and put on flesh and blood so that that very same flesh and blood would be broken and poured out for the remission of our sins. That's why he came. And that is the greatest love story ever told. And I think, brothers and sisters, we, we seldom appreciate this fact that Jesus Christ didn't need to come. That Jesus came and God sent him because of love's sake. And I think we take it for granted like this. We say, oh, the gospel story, yeah, that's just the way things are. I mean, it's, I've always heard it ever since I've been young. You know, it's in the world for 2,000 years. And we just assume that that's just the way thing it, things are. I'm a sinner. He's the Savior. I'm the sinner. He died on the cross for me. Yeah, that's just the way things are. It's like the sun goes up, the sun goes down. Yeah, the gospel story, it's part of life. But brothers and sisters, it's, it's not like that. And don't think it's like that. It's not like that at all. It's not part of life. It's not just the way things are. It's a radical, shocking thing that God did for us that didn't need to happen of necessity. It happened because he loved you and he came to take away your sins. And think about it. He didn't have to. You could have gone to hell, and that would have been okay. But he did it because he loves you. Don't take it for granted that the gospel is just part of life. It's not. I think when we get to heaven, that's one of the things we'll be in awe about. You died for me, and it wasn't just like you had to. I mean, I could have actually gone to hell. I really could have, and I should have. And the fact that I'm in heaven is odd. It's one of those, really? Really? 
He takes away our sin. We should know by now through his death. In the Greek, the word take away is actually to bear. That means that he actually picks up our sins, puts them on his own shoulders, and he bears them away. That's what the word means in the Greek. He came to bear our sins. John the Baptist uses the exact same Greek word when he pointed to Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He uses the same Greek word. The Lamb takes it away. How does the Lamb take it away? The Lamb takes it away by dying for those sins. Your sins were not forgiven easily. Your sins were not taken away with God just snapping his finger like that. The holy God was not able to take away our sins any other way. There are many things God can't do. Do you believe that? Don't get this false notion of omnipotence in your mind. Oh, God can do anything. That's not true. The Bible never says that. God cannot sin. God cannot lie because God is always true to himself. God is a righteous God. So God can't just do anything. No, God could not have looked on you and said, okay, you're a sinner. Okay, I'll just whoosh, take your sins away with the snap of my fingers. He couldn't do it. Because if God did that, he would cease to be God. He would cease to be himself. God as a righteous God would not ever do that. To do that would be to be unrighteous. In order for God to take away our sins... He would have to recognize our sins and deal with them as sin. And he did that in his son. The death of Christ isn't an indication of God's unwillingness to just snap his fingers and take away our sins. As if, why did Jesus have to step in front of God as if God didn't want to save us? It's not like that at all. And if that's the way you think, you've missed the whole point. The death of Jesus is the indication of how much God wants to save you, to what length he goes to save you, and to deliver you in the only way you could be delivered, from his righteous wrath and justice. Amen? You see that? Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and he saves them by bearing their sins away in his death. On the cross, Christ took our sins, our law-breaking and he paid the penalty for them so that we could go free. That's what we sing about. And you know he did that because he loves you. And remember it. The gospel is the greatest love story ever told. Now it says at the end of verse 5, in him is no sin. Or as we sang earlier, no sin to hide. Right? Your only son, no sin to hide. He had no sin. He wasn't hiding it. When we read the life of Jesus, we are struck by his sinlessness. But he wasn't hiding his sin. He wasn't just putting on a good show. Jesus was actually sinless. And that's unique. He was a sinless man. There's no comparison to that. We can't point to, to Brad and say... Just like Brad. <laughs> we can't do that. <laughs> Can you imagine a sinless man? Yeah. It, it is so foreign. 
Jesus was a foreigner. And yet he was the one who was the creator. And now this sinless man dies. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus, the sinless man, dies for us. Now we all know this, that Jesus is sinless. But do we see what it says next in John? It says, in him is no sin. And also it says, in verse 6, whosoever abides in him, what? Doesn't sin. So I think the first part we get good. Is Jesus sinless? Absolutely. Are you in him? I am in him. Are you sinless? Uh. Okay, let's go over this again. Is Jesus sinless? Yes, he is. In him is no sin. In him is no sin. Are you in him? According to the Bible, you are in him. Are you sinless? Apparently. Correct. Again, this is one of those, what? <laughs> if this, this is one of those gospel mysteries that is higher than the heavens, it's hard to understand. In him is no sin, and whoever abides in him sins not. Whoever abides in him. And we looked at last, uh, two weeks ago, about that, abiding in him. How do we abide in him? How do we abide in Christ? We abide in him by believing the gospel. And by abiding in the Son, we also abide in the Father, in whom is also no sin, in the Father. When we believe, we're united to Jesus. However, this verse, whoever abides in him sins not, and verse 9, whoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he's born of God. This has caused great confusion in the Christian church. Great confusion in the Christian church. So some people ask, well, my goodness, doesn't this contradict what John says earlier in 1 John when he says in chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Doesn't that contradict? Because in chapter 2 he says, if you sin, Jesus Christ is your advocate. And then in chapter 3 he says, if you're born of God, you can't sin. Well, look at that. Is there a contradiction? Or is there a contradiction in my experience? Because as, as you read 1 John chapter 3, whoever abides in him, I don't know if you felt uncomfortable when I read that, but whoever abides in Christ doesn't sin. And by the way, look at the next part of that verse. If you sin, if you break the law, so remember what sin is. You have never seen him, nor have you ever known him. Wow. It doesn't just say when you sin, you, you kind of get kicked outside of him, and now you have to kind of get back in. If you sin, you have never seen him. You have never known him, ever. Isn't that amazing? Well, there's our experience. We say, well, goodness, John, why are you saying this, John? I thought you were writing this that my joy could be full. And my experience seems to deny that. John, how many of you sin every day? I sin every day, I do. 
Because of this confusion, the majority of Christians have sought to soften and obscure John's words. Now, this attempt is driven by necessity in their minds. They think, well, we can't read it the way that he's writing it. We can't do that. Because if we read it the way that he's writing it, then that just doesn't make sense. And then I'm not going to have assurance. And I mean, because I sin. I, don't, I mean, I, I thought I knew Jesus. So we have to change the meaning of what he's saying. Or we have to find some kind of way to explain this that softens and obscures what he's actually saying, or the force of these words. And, of course, the, uh, the outcome of such an endeavor is to say that J- what John is saying is that it's not that if you commit one sin, it's not that you, if you commit any sin that you don't know God, it's if you live a lifestyle of sin. If you live a lifestyle of sin. The word habitual is thrown around. By the way, that's a complete uh, foreign word to this passage. So they say, so many of your translations actually will, and the, the attempt is a, is a noble one. They're not maliciously doing this. They're trying to explain 1 John 3. And many of your translations will say, whoever practices sin or goes on practicing sin, or they'll put it like that, right? What they're trying to do is they're trying to bring out this idea of a habitual lifestyle. So Matt, if you habitually sin, then you don't know God. The question can be raised, right? How many of you habitually sin? What does that mean? You know? How many of you sin as a habit? I mean, I think I do. <laughs> you know? What's that? When I say habitual? I mean, I know they continue to probe these these commentators probe this because the questions are raised, well don't we all habitually sin? And they have to even move beyond saying it's just habitual. It's not just regular, it's it's also, well, maybe we will sin every day, but if we hate our sin if we don't like to sin, if we don't want to sin, then of course we're actually uh, doing righteousness as he is righteous. So it continues to move along the line. There's really no end to where this will go when you, when you try to obscure his words. That is exactly not what John is saying. John is not saying that. He's not saying whoever hates their sin... is as righteous as Jesus is righteous. Whoever hates their sin, you can't, you can't love your sin if you're born of God. You can't do it. He's not saying that. He's saying you can't commit sin. He was manifested to take away our sin, and in him is no sin. Let me give you a few reasons why this is a faulty way of going with this interpretation. Number one, the argument, and the sole argument for this, is the Greek tense of the word. They say, well, the Greek tense of the word is a present continuous sense. So they say, well, because John says you cannot commit sin, and he's using it in a present sense, and he's using it in a continuous sense as well. So maybe that means, they think, a habitual thing, like an ongoing thing. The problem with that view is that the present continuous sense 
doesn't have to be taken in that way. You can say presently and continuously that you don't sin, and it doesn't mean habitual. It means you, right now and onward, don't sin. You can take it in that way. There's no warrant to say John must mean it's habitual. And such a subtlety seems unusual for John to make such an important point with such a subtlety, and a subtlety that doesn't even necessitate that kind of an interpretation. Many commentators have pointed out the flaws of that. They said, you know what? It's unwarranted to do that. You can't do that. I. Howard Marshall is a respected commentator. He says this about that. He says, this interpretation involves translators stressing the present continuous form of the verb in a way which they do not do elsewhere in the New Testament. For example, John 15.10, Jesus says, I have kept my Father's commandments. That's a present continuous. Does that mean that Jesus habitually kept the Father's commandments but not always kept the Father's commandments? That would be the same thing. Well, it doesn't mean that Jesus always kept the Father's commandments. It just meant that he habitually did as a lifestyle. It just doesn't go there, and neither does it have to go here in 1 John. So number one, the Greek doesn't necessitate it. In fact, elsewhere, it seems to speak against that. Secondly, another commentator writes this, this idea weakens and even destroys the author's argument. Notice, in verse 4, let us take habitually sinning as our definition of sin. Is it true to say, whoever commits sin habitually transgresses the law? Now, if you commit sin now and again, not habitually, you're not a lawbreaker. But if you habitually sin, how do you break the law? You do it if you habitually do it. Is that true? Now, habitual sin certainly is breaking the law. But is not one sin breaking the law as well? Is not committing sin breaking the law? So can we take the def- can we define committing sin as habitual in verse 4? We can't. Every time we sin, we are aware that we are responsible for that and that we did it willingly. If we didn't do it willingly, we wouldn't feel guilty for it. Somebody grabbed my arm and made me do it. So I'm, I'm, off, I'm scot-free. And how many of you know that when you sin, you try to justify your sin in that way? Oh, it was just, it, was, it wasn't me. I was unwilling. But you know that's a lot true. So every time we sin, Rod, it is, it is a willing thing, and we're aware of that. That's why we try to justify it. Is Jesus only habitually righteous in verse 5 and 7? In him, is no, in him is no sin. Now, when we say in him is no sin, we mean sinless. We don't mean in him is no habitual sin. In verse 7, look what it says here. Little children, it puts it in, it's talking about the same thing in the other angle. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that does righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. In the same way that he's righteous, you are righteous, if you do righteousness. Of course, the translators will, or the interpreters of this will also try to bring habitual into this. They'll say, well, we don't do righteousness, 
perfectly, so it must mean habitual do righteousness. If I, if I as a lifestyle do good deeds, I'm as righteous as Jesus is righteous. Is Jesus only habitually righteous? No. Are you following this? The next point I'll make, or the last point on this issue, is that John, if he were talking about a lifestyle or an ongoing regular practice of sinning, as the interpreters want him to be saying, then he would have used the Greek word praso, which means practice, which means habitual. That's the word itself instead of poio, which is to do or to commit. And all throughout this passage, he uses poio. Whoever does righteousness, whoever does sin, and the sense is oh, any sin, if he wanted it to be a lifestyle, he would have used prasso, and he didn't. So thus, such an idea weakens and destroys John's point. And brothers and sisters, we believe that John is not saying something that's soft. It's black and white. He's not gray. He's saying, look, if you sin, you don't even know Christ. If you're born of God, guess what? You can't sin. It's impossible. Whoever sins has not known him. If you do righteousness, you are as righteous as Jesus is righteous. If you sin, you're of the devil. And his words are strong, just like they've been strong all throughout the book, right? So far, his words have been very strong, black and white. It's his usual manner. You do not sin if you're a Christian. And how can that be? Think about it. It's rhetorical. How can that be? And brothers and sisters, the point that John is making is this. If you abide in him, whoever abides in him, by virtue of being in him, you sin not. By virtue of being in him, he is the sinless one. And when you believe the gospel, when you put your faith in what he has done for you, the Bible all over doesn't just say you're forgiven from a distance. The Bible says that you are united to Christ. You are one as he is one with the Father. You are one with him. Your identity has been swallowed up in his identity. Jesus, when he died on the cross, he took our identity. Jesus died your death on the cross. He didn't die his own. Jesus had no sin to die for, but he died for your sins. And then he says, now, believe on me. Believe on me. And be united to me. If you are in Christ, you are as sinless as he is. Chapter 3, verse 3, it says, when you believe, you purify yourself as he is pure. In verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. When you believe, you do righteousness. And you are righteous as he is righteous. Do you believe that if you're a Christian, you're as righteous as Jesus Christ? Do you believe that? That's what it says. 
It's kind of like, oh, I can't say that, can I? And we hesitate to do that because we're basing our righteousness on our own performance. We're saying, well, my performance isn't like his. So I can't say I'm righteous as he is. And John is saying, look, all the apostles are saying this. Listen, righteousness isn't by your own works. Righteousness comes through faith in Christ. And it's not a fiction. He died for your sins. He takes them away. If you've believed on him, Matt, where are your sins? They're gone. If you've believed on him, he has cast your sins as far as the east is from the west. That's pretty far. He doesn't remember your sins anymore. Is this true or is this just a fiction? Is this just poetry? Or is that true? Is that true or not? If righteousness is based upon our performance, then none of us are righteous. Who can say they're like Jesus? Who can say that you're as righteous as Jesus is in your performance? And yet John declares that of the Christian. John declares it of the Christian. He says you're as righteous as he is. He's not talking about your performance, clearly. He's talking about through faith, you've been united to him. And by virtue of being in him, you're as sinless as he is. Look at chapter 4, verse 17. Listen to this amazing verse. It says, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. How do you have boldness in the day of judgment? Yeah, you're a sinner. You've broken God's law. And you're going to go be judged by the judge. And the Bible says the Christian has boldness. You don't have to be afraid of the judgment day, brothers and sisters. Why? Well, you would be afraid if it was about you and standing before God and being judged by your works, you'd be very afraid. You'd be terrified, as sadly many people will be. But we have boldness on the day of judgment for one reason only, and that's because Jesus Christ took away our sins, and that's not a fiction. On judgment day, no sin. Isn't that amazing? No sin. We are bulletproof. Because of what the Lamb has done for us in taking our sin away. And look what it says in the rest of this verse. As he is, as he is, so are we in this world. Well, is that true for you? It's a true statement for every Christian. But if you look at that from your performance, well, my goodness, that's not true of me. Because John's not looking at it from our performance. John is saying, look, learn to look at life through the eyes of the gospel, through the eyes of this amazing mystery that the Son of God was manifested to take away your sin, that he died on the cross for you, and that God doesn't, uh, righteousness doesn't come by your works. God sees you as blameless, the Bible says, in his sight. You ever read those verses in the New Testament where it says, you're holy and blameless in his sight? And you think, well, I guess that's not true for me. It's true for every believer. You're holy and blameless in his sight. John is simply explicitly saying what is implicit in the gospel. If Christ died for your sins and took it away, then John is explicitly now saying, guess what? You're sinless. You're righteous. And if you're in him, you don't sin. That is 
God doesn't see sin in you. And if he does, you're not a Christian. Think about it, brothers and sisters. If God, if you could sin today, and God goes, aha, and he counts it against you, you're not a Christian. You're condemned by that. Do you understand? If your sins were held against you, then you need a savior. The gospel doesn't just tell us that our sins are taken away and that we're blameless, but one other thing that it tells us, and this is an amazing thing that John is touching. It tells us that we become, when we believe, dead to the law. Remember that? Everyone needs to go back and read Romans. It says in Romans that a believer in Jesus is freed from the law. Remember it talks about the marriage and it says a husband is married to a wife or a wife is married to a husband is bound to that husband as long as that husband lives. But if the husband dies, then that wife is now free from that husband, not obligated to it, and now the wife can get married again. Right? And then he compares that and he says, and by the way, when Jesus died your death, that wasn't a fiction. He died in your place. And when you believed in him, the law considered you to be dead. The law which was over you, the the law which you were under, which was looking for you, which was obliging you to do things, a report came to the office, says, such and such a person's dead. Alan's dead. Alan died. Okay, then we're just going to not worry about him anymore. We don't need to look for him anymore. We don't need to him have to, have to pay taxes anymore. He's dead. Those cowboys, those outlaws, the posse's looking for him because they're under the law. They're just not living by the law. Well, all of a sudden, they get the record. Those cowboys are all dead. Okay, call the posse home. They're free. And this is the amazing condition of every Christian is that even though you're still living because you haven't died but Jesus died for you, the law considers you to be dead. And so you are free from the law. You can read that in Romans. It's the most amazing thing. What does that mean? That means that you don't break the law anymore. How can a Christian break the law when he's not under law anymore? Think about it. How can you break a law that you are not under anymore. And this is what John is saying. If sin is transgressing the law, a Christian can't do it. If you could do it, you never knew him, you've never seen him. That's what he says in verse 9. You cannot sin. Isn't that amazing? That's a lot to think about, isn't it? Let me encourage you to read the book of Romans and, and ask yourself that question as you go through it. What does it say about my relationship to the law? Christians cannot break the law, and yet Christians are not lawless. Because as it says in Romans, when we believe in Jesus, the law is established in our lives. Meaning, I'm free from the law, I'm forgiven of all my sins, but it was done in a righteous way. The Lord Jesus Christ died for my sins, he paid for it. So I'm free, but I'm free righteously. God hasn't done anything illegal in saving me. 
So how do we explain chapter 2, verse 1? When he says, if any man sins, we have an advocate, or I write these things that you do not sin. The simple answer is that John is talking about sin in two different senses. Because in one sense, we can truly say, you know what, I sin every day, right? I know what the law says. I mean, I got a memory. I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. But I fail. Every day I sin. I, I uh, do not live up to that. So in one sense, I can say as a Christian, I sin. But in a, another sense, in a more true sense, in the sense that God sees me, I, don't, I do not sin. If God saw my sin, then I wouldn't be a Christian. If he remembered my sin, I wouldn't be in the new covenant. So do you see that, how you can talk about those two things? So if Jacob, I sin against you, you can say, I can confess and say, I'm sorry I sinned against you, Jacob. I did sin. But you could respond and you go, you know, I forgive you, and the good thing is that God doesn't count that against you, right? You're totally sinless in his sight, Eli. So there's these two senses we can talk about it. This is the great mystery of the gospel, brothers and sisters, that we need to learn to think like this. It's a mystery. It's a step back and go, really? I mean, even if I get mad at my brother or my wife today, you mean Jesus really died for that and it's really taken away? Like God really sees me as blameless? I mean, he doesn't count it against me every time I sin? It's true. And if you could, then you wouldn't be a Christian. Isn't that amazing? There's only two kinds of people in the world. The righteous and the unrighteous. You're either righteous or you're unrighteous. You're either one whom God sees as blameless, one who is righteous as he is righteous, or you are, by your own performance, a sinner and seen as such by God. You need a savior if that's the case. Maybe you're hearing this and you're thinking, I need to be righteous. I've never had my sins forgiven. Well, the simple answer is that Christ died. He came into the world to take away your sins by dying for you. And you simply believe what he's done for you. Trust in that. And God forgives you. And God sees you as righteous through him. If you aren't righteous, John declares here that you're of your father, the devil. He that commits sin, verse 8, is of the devil, and the devil sins from the beginning. But look what he says at the next part. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. You know what I believe the works of the devil are? It's like the opposite of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, We are his workmanship. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And I believe that the works of the devil are men that he has turned against God. Men that he has brought them into his rebellion and brought them under the condemnation of, of death. The devil from the beginning has been turning men against God. And Jesus came to destroy the works or the workmanship of Satan in people's lives. If you're a condemned sinner, then you're the work of Satan. But if you're a righteous saint by faith, then you're God's workmanship, that he has destroyed the works of the devil in your life. Isn't that wonderful? 
He's destroyed the work of the devil by delivering you. And one day, the Bible tells us that Jesus will crush the head of the serpent. Remember the old promise? He'll crush the head of the serpent. Now we know that on the cross, Jesus crushed the serpent's head with his death. That's the power of that. But yet, the second coming of Christ is when he's going to enforce what he's accomplished at the cross. He's going to evict Satan from this world. One day, Satan will not turn men away from God anymore. But the power of that is gone because of the cross. And our job now is to tell people about that. Satan's defeated. Yeah, he's still got some time because Jesus just hasn't chosen to evict him yet. But he's defeated, and you can escape this wicked age. You can escape Satan's condemnation, of Satan's rebellion, by simply believing in the gospel. And one day, this world will be redeemed as well. Jesus has come to do that. So, brothers and sisters, what a glorious condition the Christians are in. Amen? There's nothing like this. If you're a Christian, there's no parallel. Just like we said earlier, the sinless man, Jesus Christ. Remember we talked about him? There's no parallel. Jesus is a sinless man. Who can compare to him? Well, the Christian is also in a situation and a condition that's unparalleled. If you've believed on Jesus, consider this. You cannot sin. Isn't that amazing? You can walk out of these doors knowing that your sins have been forgiven, that you're righteous through faith, and that even if you sin, God doesn't remember it anymore. How amazing is that? You can have assurance. There's nothing like it. And you have it by simple faith. So let your joy be full. Don't let sin rob you of your joy, but rather let your assurance and your joy overcome your sin and give you a heart of thankful love to God whereby we serve him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much and we aren't in awe as we ought to be at these amazing things that are foreign and odd and, uh, and unique, God, that you would deliver us from our sins through your death, that you would deliver us from the law, that we aren't even under the law so as to break it anymore, that we're so free, God, and we want, Lord, to show you our thanks and use our freedom to serve one another in love. We thank you so much, God, for, for this day and for showing us, God, just what an amazing gospel, what an amazing love story it is. Thank you for loving us. Give us assurance and joy today as we remember what you've done for us and your steadfast love toward us. We praise you in Jesus' name, our Savior. Amen.